The scripture that I'm going to read for us this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. We're going to be focusing on beginning at verse 11, but I want to read verse 1 through uh, 10 just to sort of set the stage and give us a little bit of the context of this chapter, and then we will also, I'll also address it again by way of introduction. So we read, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, or Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But, we just described all of this unity language, is one, 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 but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would come. We ask that You would send Your Spirit and give us the ability to understand these things. Uh, Lord, we are looking at a passage of Scripture that is written in a, a, a style that most of us would not write, most of us would not speak. Uh, Lord, it's a complex passage, and so I ask that you would uh, come and, and help uh, the preacher as he seeks to exegete these uh, words and phrases. Lord, we ask most of all that your Spirit would come and help your people understand your Word. Father, build your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. We are looking at the church. Most of us are members of a local church. We're all here gathered to attend a service of a local church. And I would hope that for most of us, involvement in the church holds some sort of a special place in our hearts. I, I, that's my prayer and, and my, my hope. And so our goal... For the past several weeks and then looking forward for several more weeks, our goal is to just 
try to understand the church. Try to pick it apart and, and get a good grasp of what the church is, both globally, universally, and also as a local body. So over the past several weeks, we've learned a few things. Uh, primarily, we've learned first that the church belongs to Jesus. That this church is not our church or my church. And that church over there is not their church. The church belongs to Jesus. Because the church belongs to Jesus, then the church exists to accomplish His purposes. We don't get together and try to decide what we would like to do as a church, but rather we look to Christ and we look to His Word and we ask of it, what would you have us to do? And then we do that. And then we begin to look at three main purposes of the church. If, if Christ is the head of the church and then we, our purpose is His purpose, then what, what, what are the purposes? Why do we exist? First, we looked at worship. The church exists to worship our God. And then last week, we looked at evangelism. The church exists to preach the gospel. You'll remember from two weeks ago that worship is the overarching theme of all that we do. Everything that we do as a church we could, be, could be absorbed under the heading of worship. It all flows out of an attitude of the heart where we, we, we humble ourselves and we submit ourselves and we, we serve God because of His majesty and His glory. Because of who He is and because of who we are, we are just compelled to worship. Everything that we do is worship. That attitude of the heart then oftentimes should come out of our mouths in conversation, and we call that evangelism. When we begin to understand what God has done in Christ to save a people for Himself, for His own glory, we, we get so thrilled and excited, we can't help but tell others that Christ is King. That's evangelism, and we looked at that last week. And I began with the question, if Christ is building His church, again, we're, we're, we're all of this is springing out of Matthew 16, if Christ has said, I will build my church, how has He ordained to build His church? The first way is evangelism. Numerically, that's how usually you get new people into the church. You preach the gospel, they are converted through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they are born again into a new family called the church, into the body of the church. But that's just the beginning of a process of building the church. Just like the Hebrews in Egypt, it was their task, after Pharaoh put this burden on them even, even more, it was their task not only to build the pyramids and the great things of Egypt, they also had to go and gather the straw so that they could make the bricks so that they could then build the pyramids. And the building of the church is the same way. Christ wants to use or, or uses all of the members of the body to build the body, but He also has to put together some things to make those members capable of being used. In other words, we are the bricks. And it's going to take some straw and some mortar to make us worthy bricks in order to build this body. This, this building is a process. One biblical way to put this is Matthew 28, 19. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Now go and make disciples or go and disciple people. The discipleship is a process. He doesn't say go and, and make agreeers or go and make churchgoers or go and make prayer prayers. He says make disciples, make people who will come along and, and learn of me 
and, stir, and study and grow and then go and make disciples themselves. Discipleship is this process. It's the process by which we, this, this straw and this mortar is put together and, and we're made into bricks so that we can then build a healthy, strong building. So this, this discipleship is spiritual growth. We, we must grow as individuals. And then we come together, we form this healthy body. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this process as he's ministering to the church uh, in Thessalonica. He says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, it doesn't stop at the gospel, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Now notice just those similes that he uses. Like a nursing mother. Like a father with his children. This is how the Apostle Paul approached taking these believers and working with them over this time period to build them up. And so that process leads us to the third main purpose of the church. And in keeping with Paul's concept of parenting, I want to use the word nurture. The church exists to worship, to evangelize, and to nurture those who are converted by God's power. Now because we believe in the regulative principle of worship, we immediately ask, well if we are to nurture the saints and nurture the body, then we go to Scripture and we ask of Scripture, what has God set in place or how has God commanded that we nurture one another? How does it work? Well, that leads us to the, Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. Remember, this book is written in two halves. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are the indicatives. They are describing what God has done to save us as individuals, to put us together as a church. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 come, uh, brings us the uh, imperatives. Here's what you do in light of that. So, in other words... Because we know, after reading chapters 1, 2, and 3, that God has, has predestined, He has called, He has chosen, He has sent Christ to atone, that He has uh, sent His Spirit to apply redemption, that He has then broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and He's gathering His elect in to a body and making this church that will display His manifold wisdom. Because of all that, then we come to chapter 4, Five and six, and God says to live like this. Now that you get it, here's how you should live. Here's how you live out church life. In chapter five, we've looked at uh, a while ago, Paul gets into specific family roles. Here's what a husband does, here's what a wife does, here's what children do, here's what the slaves do. But in chapter four, he gives the overarching general concept of life in the body, life in the church. And so we ask the question, how does the church nurture believers? What do we do to take those of us who are Christians and like 
a mother, a nursing mother, or like a father with his children, build one another up and work and help each other grow. The, the, the word nurture means to care for and encourage the growth or de- and development of a thing. You, you see to it that it will, it will grow, that it will be developed. So, the first heading, and we're going to begin in verse 11 here. The first heading that I want to look at is Christ's gifts to the church. It begins, it all begins with Christ giving something to the church. Verse 11, he says, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Christ, as the risen, ascended, ruling, reigning Lord and King of the church, in his physical absence, has given, through the special gifting of the Holy Spirit, He has given specially gifted men to the church. Or more specifically, He's given offices that are filled by men to lead in the work of nurturing His sheep. Verse 11 says, And He, we go back to verse 8, this is speaking of Christ, the one who descended to the earth and then ascended back to the Father. The incarnation and the ascension, he's describing Christ. Christ gave gifts to men. See, Christ would not have us walking ignorantly. He wouldn't have us walking blindly as a church. He doesn't just leave us to our own plans, our own devices, our own human initiative. He doesn't just say, well, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But you just go make disciples and, and good luck and I'll see you at the end of the age. I really hope it works out. He doesn't say that. He says, all authority is mine, now you go and I'm going to be with you until the end of the age. I'm going to help you in this process. Christ takes care of His bride. He takes the initiative in her health and in her purification. The Lord of the church has given gifts to the church. So what are those gifts? What says, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The apostles, you'll remember, are the the twelve that Jesus chose, minus Judas, plus Matthias, and then plus the Apostle Paul, who became an apostle as one untimely born. Christ came to him and revealed himself to him. The apostles. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. They were empowered with gifts so that they could perform what the Bible calls the signs of an apostle. They were chosen especially by the Lord to take the message of the gospel, and proclaim it. And so the apostles had the authority of Christ. Their words were on par with Scripture. When they spoke, it was God who was speaking. In other words, their words are, or a lot of their words are our Bible. When we read the New Testament, we are reading the words, for the most part, of apostles. Now this office of apostle no longer exists because if the requirement is to have Uh, visibly seen the resurrected Christ, well, no, no one is in that category anymore. So there are no longer apostles. They were the first ones sent. They're the first level after Christ, if you can think of this as, as a staircase. And they were sent with the divine revelation. Again, we have their words written down. When they would speak, it was as if God were speaking. Then we have the prophets. The prophets of the New Testament were often men who were trained by the apostles. They came immediately after the apostles. Some of the prophets even had special gifts 
signs that were given to them by the laying on of hands of the apostles. All of this during the apostolic age. The prophets would often take the teaching of the apostles and teach them in the local church. So this was like the first generation of preachers after the apostles. The first level of proclaimers after the apostles. And then we have the evangelists. Now notice it says the evangelists, not just some evangelists. The evangelist. Now, I believe that this is not just a person who shares the gospel or a person who has the gift of evangelism. When it says the evangelist, uh, I believe, as, as many do, that this was a distinct office of men during the time of the apostles and prophets. Now, some of the apostles were also evangelists. Some of the prophets were also evangelists. The evangelists were the very first church planters. They would go out and preach the gospel. People would be converted and they would establish churches. The Apostle Paul did this. They went from place to place and established churches. In, in the book of Acts, we read of Philip the Evangelist. And when we first meet Philip, he's at the church in Jerusalem serving there. And then when the persecution comes, he's sent to Samaria. He preaches and many are converted. And then the Holy Spirit comes and takes him to Gaza and he preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch and he's converted. And then he's, by Acts 21, we find him in Caesarea. He's just all over the place. And in Acts 21, it refers to him as Philip the Evangelist. Evangelists, in a certain way, still exist today. It's not an office of the church, but it is a role. There are men that we call church planters. And this is what they do. They preach the gospel and they plant churches. They don't have the office of an evangelist, but they do the duty. They preach the gospel, establish churches, and once the church is self-sustained, they move on to somewhere else. Um, and, and just by way of, of reminder, Philip did signs and wonders amongst the people, again, during this apostolic era when the church was being established. Those who are evangelists now do not do signs and wonders. They simply preach the gospel. Then we have... Shepherds and teachers. Now, notice there's no definite article before teachers. It doesn't say the shepherds and the teachers. It's just the shepherds and teachers. And again, I believe with, with many commentators that this is two descriptions of the same office. This office is that of the elders or pastors in the local church. Elder or pastor is one of two offices mentioned in the New Testament in Paul's uh, pastoral epistles. And in the weeks to come, we're going to look at those offices. The office of elder and deacon, the, the leadership of the church. The elder's job is to shepherd and care for and lead and guide and comfort and strengthen the local body, shepherd, and teach the Word. Elders must be, as Paul says, apt to teach. They have to be able to take the Word and teach it. So they take the Bible and they preach it, they teach it, they counsel with it, they guide the church with it. The elders or pastors, their duty, as John MacArthur would say, is to lead and feed. Lead and feed, lead and feed. That's what the elder does. So all of these offices have been given to the church as gifts. Christ says, I'm going to give you these offices. Now again, in the New Testament, many of these offices cross paths. Paul was an evangelist, and he was also an apostle. Peter was an apostle, but he also calls himself your fellow elder. So he was an elder. Timothy was a pastor. 
but he was also commanded to do the work of an evangelist. You see, there's a lot of crossing paths in the New Testament era um, as the church was being established. So the New Testament sets up patterns um, and serves a distinct purpose in redemptive history. We look at the things written later to establish the structure of the church now. So Jesus has given these gifts. Now what do all of those gifts have in common? They are all offices of word proclamation. Every one of them. The apostles would receive divine revelation directly from God. The prophets would receive it from the apostles. The evangelists would receive it from the apostles and prophets and the written canon. And the elders of the local church now take the written canon of Scripture and we preach it and we teach it and we lead with it and we counsel from it. So this is Christ's gift to the church. Here are offices of men who will preach and teach and lead and proclaim the Word. In Ephesians 5, it's phrased like this, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word. When the church is sanctified fully and glorified, it will be because Christ sanctified her through the washing of the Word. He purifies His bride. Now, why has Jesus given these gifts to His church? What is the distinct purpose? We preach the Word, but to, to what end? And that leads us to the second heading, the purpose of these gifts stated positively. Beginning in verse 12. Paul says He gave these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Notice the word to in verse 12. To the end that, or for the purpose of, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now if there are offices, and then there are the saints, guess who the saints are? They're those who do not hold the offices. The two different... So, so if I could ask, raise your hand if you would find yourself in the category of the saints. How many people would raise their hand? There you go. You got it. Don't be, don't be afraid. You're either an office holder or in this passage specifically, you're categorized as the saints. It's the church members, the body. So the job of these offices is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Today we have evangelists and we have pastor teachers or, or elders. Their job, equip the saints. Now this word equip does not mean, like we often hear it, this car comes fully equipped in that it has all of the bells and whistles to tickle your sensual desires. That's not what the word equip means. It means to move along a process so that by the end of the process, you are adequately furnished to suit a particular purpose. That's this equipping. So what is the purpose? Equip the saints, get them ready for the purpose of... And then he says, for the work of ministry. The work of service. The labor of serving others. So you, the saints, the Christians, are set on a path that will find its culmination in your being fitted to serve the other saints. To help them. To labor for them. Now this process takes time and it takes work. It takes the right tools and the right mindset. And the evangelists and the pastor teachers have the duty of making sure you have everything you need in your heart and in your mind and in your hands to do this duty. 
to serve one another. And again, what is the distinctive role of all of the offices? It was word proclamation, preaching the word. So through the preaching of the word, saints are equipped spiritually and mentally to serve one another. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the proclamation, the preaching and teaching of Scripture, so that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live to serve other saints. Now, why do we do this? Why do we minister? Why is it important that we all be adequately equipped to serve one another? Well, he goes on, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the purpose of the ministry, here it is positively, for... Building up the body of Christ. Remember, this is our, our, our focus. Christ said, I will build my church. And building assumes planning and blueprints and materials and construction. It assumes a final product in mind. So the building comes in here for the building of the body of Christ. So the goal of giving these men to the church is to preach the Word so that ultimately the church will grow. This is how church growth takes place. So what is the end goal? What does a built church look like? Christ says, I will build. Here, the the saints minister for building. So what does a built church look like? Does that mean you've got banners in the parking lot? You've got ministries all over the place? You've got a lot of hits on sermon audio? People are listening to your stuff? Does it mean you've got a building program? You see new faces all the time? Are all of those the things that we look at to say, well, I guess we've got a built church? What does the Apostle Paul say? Is the end goal of this ministration of the saints and the building of the church? Verse 13, he says, until... That's how you know this is the goal. Until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the end goal. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the modern church growth movement has it all wrong if they say, Well, we've got to entertain and we've got to assimilate and we've got to captivate and we've got to make them feel comfortable so that we can keep filling seats so that we can build the church. That's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says we we want the people, the body, to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So let's unpack that. Now I believe when it says the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, that's one distinct goal. Unity of the faith and of, or unity of, the knowledge of the Son of God. We have one goal we're working towards. The finished product. Unity of the faith. That's, that's the Christian faith. The, the whole spectrum of Christian doctrine and theology. The entirety of all that is to be believed and held concerning God and His Christ written in Scripture. The faith. And... Unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowing the, the, the singular focus of all of the Christian doctrine. Christ, the Son of God. We looked at it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the foundation on which all theology is built. That Jesus Christ, incarnate of a virgin, born under the law, came. He is the Messiah. 
He's the Son of God who was crucified, raised on the third day for our justification, ascended to the Father where He rules and reigns. He is King. Everything in Scripture, all of our theology, centers on that. Unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Intimate, personal, experiential communion with Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. This is our singular focus. Everything that we do is trying to get everybody unified and focused on that one thing, knowing and pursuing and communing with Christ. All of our doctrine leads to the knowledge of the Son of God. All of our theology finds its summation in the knowledge of the Son of God. All roads of biblical exegesis find their end point at the knowledge of the Son of God. Again, I've said it week after week. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's all about the knowledge of the Son of God. So, Jesus has given offices to the church. These offices proclaim the Word. They preach. And the saints hear the Word, and the saints are built up and equipped by the preaching of the Word to serve one another. And when the saints serve one another, it builds the church, and the end goal is a body that is completely united in their pursuit of personal acquaintance with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our goal. Next, Paul gives a very common biblical analogy of this process, of this unity. He says, two, and just to, to kind of get... The, the sentence phrasing in your mind until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That's the analogy. Mature manhood, just like a full-grown man. It's the metaphor of maturity. Having passed through all of the stages of growth and arrived at adulthood, that's our goal. We want to have a mature body. To, and then he says it again, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There it's stated explicitly. Our goal of the church is Christ-likeness. As individuals, as families, as a local church body, we want to grow up so that we can adequately complement our head. That we can adequately display His Glory in His physical absence. We are His body, and so we want to come together and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So the goal is to get there. Christ-likeness. Grow up until we look like Christ. So when the church is unified in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, we, we all come together and we're on this one set focus pursuit of knowledge of Christ, which includes deep, personal, experiential communion and knowledge of Christ, we would be considered at that point a healthy, mature church. And we will exemplify through our functions and through our ministry the purpose of Christ when He was on the earth and what He's commanded us to do when we're healthy. And all of that happens through the preaching and teaching of the Word which happens because Christ has given gifts to His church. You see how this is flowing. So the purpose stated positively, our goal, maturity, unity, 
knowledge of Christ. That's where we want to be. And then Paul states this, this same goal in a negative form. The, the third heading is the purpose of these gifts stated negatively. Now we know what we, we want to get to. What do we not want to be? Verse 14, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So the goal of the, of the church and this growth is to, to make progress out of immaturity and instability to maturity and soundness of doctrine. That is church growth. Church growth is we are mature, we have sound doctrine, we're not unstable, we're fixed and we're firm. He says, so that, again back to our purpose, and then he gives this analogy of immaturity, so that we may no longer be children. Given in the negative again, no longer be children. It assumes that we used to be children. We, we came from that, but we don't want to stay there. Now think about the, the, the process here. We used to be children, and we're working toward mature manhood. How, do we, how is it that we are, are first established into this body? We're born again. So we're born, and then we're children, and then we're mature men. We grow into a mature body. You see that process? Just like a human being. Just like a real, actual, physical body. Now, this is important. When you're born again, when you become a Christian, you start from scratch. You, you don't say, well, well, well I, was, I, was a great, I was a great entrepreneurial leader in the world. I was a great businessman. And now that I'm a Christian, well, well I, I've already started three steps above the person who wasn't that. No, when you are born again, you start from scratch as an infant. And you take that milk and you get it and you grow and you become a child. And then from a child, you, you don't want to stay that way. You grow into maturity. So he says, we don't want to be children, no longer children. And then he describes this immaturity. He describes the character of a child. Here we have the description of an immature church. Tossed to and fro. We got, we got a bunch of kids in here. We, we know how kids are. Children, are they're just all over the place. Children, they'll go from one toy to another, to another, to another. Every little flashing light or, 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 or bright color or loud sound entices them. At a birthday party, you give them one present. It's the greatest thing they've ever had until you give them the next present. Then that's the greatest thing. Until you give them the next present. And that's the greatest thing. Constantly chasing after the newest and the newest and the newest and the newest. Fascinated by everything that comes along. This is children. Tossed to and fro. Carried about by every wind. He says of doctrine that there's no stability. There's no anchor. Every time a wave comes, the wind blows a wave, you're just pushed about. This is, this is children. They believe anything you tell them. They have no starting point until we begin to catechize them. They have no starting point to gauge truth. They don't know. Until they learn in their minds, are there more gods than one? No, there's only one God. Then you can tell them there's seven gods or, or many gods. But until they learn that, they have no foundation. Anything they're told, they believe it. They take it as truth. They're gullible and vulnerable. And the instruments of the deception of these, this, this immature church, these spiritual children, is every wind of doctrine. Anything 
and everything that seems maybe kind of somewhat close to what the Bible says or just uses Bible words or a Bible phrase is just taken as biblical. It's got to be. It captivates those who are spiritually immature. Every wind of doctrine, anything that comes along, human cunning, craftiness in deceitful schemes. Listen to these passages. Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Or 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Titus 1, 10 and 11, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be or what they ought not to teach. Jude 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ over and over. The writers of the New Testament warned, they're coming, look out, there are going to be people who try to teach you doctrine and it's going to be, it's going to be close. They're going to try to twist it. And this same group here in Ephesus that Paul was speaking to in Acts chapter 20, this same group, he gives the negative goal. You don't want to be childish. Don't stay immature. The goal is that you progress out of immaturity. You're no longer children, but you grow into mature manhood. And growth as a body is characterized by avoiding deceitful schemes. The immature church, the immature Christian is easily led away by every wind of doctrine. If that's not descriptive of modern evangelicalism, I don't know what is. That's where we are. Every new idea is the greatest thing. It's just, it's, it's great. Every book is the greatest book. On this topic, there's none better. Every celebrity pastor, he said it. You can't, you can't go against that. It's taken as gospel. Christians, we are now a demographic for marketing Make a movie about prayer, and it's taken and advertised, and play it in the church. It doesn't matter how unbiblical it actually is, how, how much it takes the Bible and actually teaches what the Bible teaches about prayer. We just we suck it up. You write a book about going to heaven or praying in circles. No matter its nearness to the Bible, Christians just eat it up. We, we, we consume it. I would dare to say the average Christian in America, is probably the most gullible, easily entertained, easily enticed, self-centered person on the earth. If it seems spiritual, if it seems biblical, buy it, promote it, sell the tickets, get the shirts, buy the study guides, preach through the movie on Sunday, just get, in, get, into the, or get onto the bandwagon of, of what's being sold. See, we as a church have been suckered into the scheme of making money by large corporations because we are a naive, exploitable demographic. The evangelical. If you don't believe it, watch the politicians pander to the evangelicals. 
We're, we're, they, they know we'll buy it. All they have to say is something about Jesus. Marco Rubio is a Roman Catholic. He's not a Christian. And Christians just, just are, 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 are falling down because he proclaimed what sounded like the Christian gospel. We'll buy anything. And he knew he was at a, a group of evangelicals. He knew what to say. They have coaches who coach them in this stuff. We are a exploitable demographic. And don't you dare speak against this stuff or you're just being a hater. You're being divisive. You're just being too critical. It's a scheme. And it is devised by human cunning. And, and this mentality is childish. So Paul says the objective of serving one another in the body and building the body up is so that we're not like that. When new stuff comes along, we say, so? So what? I've got all the new I need. There's nothing new. It was once for all delivered. It's done. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child But solid food is for the mature, for those have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Notice the language, child, mature. How does it describe the mature? Those who are trained to distinguish, to discern good from evil. And it comes through constant practice. Look at the evil, look at the good, look at the right, look at the wrong, and learn the differences. Listen, you don't have to learn how to discern between things that are obviously different. You have to learn how to discern between things that are very close to the same. One thing is biblical and one thing sounds so right, but it's wrong. And it takes constant practice to be able to divide that stuff and say, well, it, it does. I'll be honest, it sounds really biblical, but here's the problem. Here's the error. That is the mature believer and the mature church. The mark of a healthy, growing, mature body is a church who's not pushed about by this stuff, not enticed by every bright light and loud noise. So Jesus has given offices to the church to preach and teach the Word. And the preaching of the teaching of the Word equips you, the saints, to serve one another. And then when the saints serve one another, the church is built and the building of the church is to the end that the members of the body are able to discern right from wrong, good doctrine from bad doctrine, and to be unified in the faith and the pursuit of Christ. So, the question that's on our mind at this point then is, what's this service? You keep saying service, we've got to serve one another. What is it? What do we do? We've got to come and I've got to make a drink for somebody, I've got to make a plate after church, I've got to take out the trash. What's the service? And that brings us to verse 15. Paul states, uh, heading number 4, the role of the saints in the ministry. Verse 15, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. So, the church being adequately equipped through the preaching and teaching of the Word are to grow up and use that truth to serve one another. Notice he says, rather. In other words, you don't want to be children anymore. Instead of that, rather than being children, speaking the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Here's the work of the ministry. Speak the truth in love. That's the work. So we grow into maturity 
into the head, who is Christ. We're formed into the image of Christ. And the church is, is walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called when we speak the truth in love. So we come back full circle. We speak the truth. It's, it's word-centered. The preachers preach and teach the Word, and then we get the Word, and then we speak the Word out to one another. Notice verse 21 of this chapter. If you still have your Bible open, verse 21, he says, Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Verse uh, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only, that such, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, and that may give grace to those who hear it. See, all of this language, the general overarching theme of a healthy body is speak the truth. Don't say false things. Don't say mean things. Don't be unkind, and, and, but, but speak the truth. Build one another up. So this is the ministry of the saints toward one another. This is what we do. We exhort one another with earnest encouragement. We say, look, hey, I've noticed what you're doing, and the Bible says that that is a godly thing. Praise God. Keep it up. You are doing great. I've seen where you've come from, and I see where you are now. Keep it up. Work hard. Don't give up. That's encouragement. Or it comes in the form of rebuke, which is sharp criticism towards sinfulness. Well, we have to approach a brother or sister and say, hey, you did this, and that's sin. You've got to stop it. This is the body of Christ. This is not Walmart. You don't live however you want to here. Or it comes in the form of reproof, which is showing the guilt of certain actions. Look, you're doing this, and you, you might not know it. Maybe you've never studied it, but, but this, is, this is wrong. I need to help you see that what you're doing is wrong. You're, you're guilty before God. It's sin. You, you should repent. You show the guilt of certain actions, or it comes in the form of godly counsel, where you take the Bible and you apply it to specific life situations. Oh, you're getting married. Well, here's what the Bible says about being married. You're about to have children. Well, here's what the Bible says about having children. You're starting a new job. Here's what the Bible says about how you should work for your boss. It comes through gospel reminders, where we come to one another and we say, hey, don't forget what Christ has done for us. Like the Apostle Paul, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Don't forget about the gospel. You're living this way. This is how we should be because don't forget what Christ has done for us. Or it comes through godly wisdom where usually those who are older come alongside of us and say, look, I've been there. This is what the Bible has to say. Look, you're not seeing every angle of this. Let me help you see this. Or through teaching. Let me explain this verse. Let me stand before you and unpack these scriptures so that you can understand or through, through warnings. Look what the Bible says. You don't want to go that route. It looks like you're headed this way. I hope that I'm wrong. It looks like you're going this way. Don't go that route. Its end is destruction. Come back. This is how we speak the truth to one another. And we are to speak the truth in love. That is the manner in which we say these things is important. Remember love... An act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action for the good or on behalf of its object. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not a, a little angel shooting you with an arrow and you can't help it. You fell into it. You might fall out of it. That's not love. Love is an act of the will. I have determined that I will love you and so I want your, your best interest. I have your best interest in mind. That's how we speak these things. We do not 
speak to display our knowledge when we're speaking the truth. Well, I just, uh, I've been studying this for several years now, and I'm kind of an expert in, in this matter, and so I just wanted you to know that's not why we speak the truth, or, or we speak the truth to display our authority. Look, hey, listen, hey, I'm an, I'm an elder here, and you just need to, to take my word for it. That's not speaking the truth in love, or, or for a desire to show your personal holiness and their lack thereof. Look, I noticed you're caught up in this evil, wretched, disgusting sin, which I've personally never committed but I want to help you see that that's not, how, that's not speaking the truth in love. We have their best interest from a biblical worldview in mind. And so when we're speaking the truth, before saying anything, we ask ourselves, how, how might they receive this? I need to think about it. You walk up to somebody caring nothing about how they will receive it, and you have not spoken the truth in love. And you cannot walk away and say, well, I did my job. You speak it in love. And so you ask, how might they receive this? What is the best way to say this to them? Where is the best place to say it? Hey, I noticed that you and your wife are trying to get your four kids into the car, but I'd like to point out a sin that I noticed the other day. I noticed everybody's quiet and they're all looking at our conversation. I want to go ahead and point out your sin in front of everybody. That's not the best place or the best time. We ask these things. We speak it in love and this shows we have their best interest in mind. We don't, we're not care, we don't care about exalting ourselves. We don't care about just delivering the message and walking away. We care about their best interest. We speak the truth. And that's called making disciples. That's called teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Taking the Bible that we have received, turning it around and making it our conversation to one another. Using Scripture to build one another up. And the fruit of this biblical truthfulness in regular conversation is that we grow up in every way into Him who is the head, who is Christ. If we started this and we kept this as our focus, every single one of us would begin to flourish spiritually. It leads to spiritual growth. Conformity to Christ. And again, it's all word-centered. It's all truth-centered. It's all Bible-centered. The ministry of the Word of God is central to the establishment of the local church, the growth of the church, and the health of the body. That's how a church body is built into maturity. So, where do you guys come in? Well, that leads to the fifth heading, the necessity of every member. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the Lord has designed that the church body, elders or officers and laymen alike, to work together through His gifting and His guidance to build itself. There's the whole body joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped, every joint, every person, every gift, every teaching, when each part is working properly, every person must do their job, every member must be equipped, every member must be speaking the truth in love. When everybody works together, it makes the body grow. The body makes the body grow. You guys make the body grow, and all of this is in love 
That's the defining character trait. We care for one another. We have our best interest. And it's all from Christ. Remember it says, into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom? It's all from Him. He gave the offices. He's given the Word. His Holy Spirit empowers us and gifts us and prompts us to speak the truth in love. It all comes from Him. And He has ordained that His church grow like this by being Word-saturated. Through the regular preaching and teaching of Scripture, God's people will become walking, talking vessels of truth. Everywhere you go, every conversation you have. And they're going to use that truth. You will use that truth to build one another up. And as each member uses his or her gifts and calling and the truth that God has given to build one another up, the church body will establish itself and become strong and firm and, 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 and roots will be planted down deep where we're not easily swayed. We know the Bible because it's our conversation piece. And all of this is from Christ as He reigns over His church. Now in closing, the motivation for this truth speaking is found at the end of verse or chapter 4 and end of chapter 5. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Notice, as God in Christ forgave you, walk in love as Christ loved us. That's our motivation. See, this type of Bible-centered local church ministry is difficult and it requires a lot of faith. Staying busy, creating programs, entertaining people, pandering to, to different focus groups. That doesn't take faith. That's all working of the flesh. We can do this. Let's build it up. Let's, let's pump some hot air into it. Let's make it flashy. We can do this. We can build this. That doesn't take faith. What takes faith is, I have the Word of God, and I'm going to speak the Word of God, and I'm going to watch the Word of God cause the body to grow. That's, that takes a lot of faith. And it means that oftentimes we have to set aside our sensual desires, our appetites, in order to trust in the Word. It's motivated by the Gospel. Even as, Christ, or even as God in Christ forgave us, as Christ offered Himself up for us, that's why we do it. When our foolish hearts were darkened, Christ offered Himself up for us and atoned for our sins, satisfied God's wrath toward us, ascended into the heaven, gave gifts to His church so that He might build her up so that we would selflessly serve one another. So the purpose of the church is first and foremost worship. And we worship by preaching the gospel and making disciples who will also preach the gospel and make disciples. And we make disciples through the regular ministry of the Word and serving one another in biblical truth speaking. And when we do this... The church is purified and it grows into a body that brings Christ glory. Not man glory, Christ glory to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray.